Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. Welcome to Think About It. I am thrilled to have two guests today for an episode uh, about Virginia Woolf's Three Guineas. And before I introduce my guests, I just want to remind listeners that you can find the podcast wherever you find podcasts and also on the New Books Network, on Spotify, etc. It's free. And uh, this is probably the fourth episode we have on Virginia Woolf. And one of my guests, Anne Van Alt, was a guest and spoke about Mrs. Dalloway a few months ago. So if you want to look at that episode, please, you can look that up. And my other guest today is Raj Saikumar, who is at NYU. I'll introduce Anne first. So Anne is professor of English and Gender and Sexuality at Fordham University. She's also the editor of the Cambridge edition of Mrs. Dalloway and the Norton Critical Edition of Mrs. Dalloway, which are two separate books. The one is available to all of you. The other one is available to all of you in libraries because it's a scholarly edition, the Cambridge one. The Norton is a reader's edition. And Anne is also the author of Virginia Woolf, Feminism and the Reader, and the editor of the Norton Reader. So our last conversation was about Mrs. Dalloway, and today it's about Three Guineas, and I'm really excited to have Anne here also, because I think, and maybe you'll talk about it, you're also teaching a course on literature and war, um, and since this is the topic of this book by Virginia Woolf from 1938, how can we end or prevent war? That maybe is something to bring up, how you talk to your students about that today. Today is, by the way, 2022, I believe, Correct. Yes. 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 And we are recording this in uh, late November of 2022. And the other guest is Raj Saikumar, who is a PhD candidate in the English department uh, at New York University and writing a dissertation. And one of the authors in the dissertation is Wolf. The other authors, as I understand, are Zora Neale Hurston, Simone Weil, Gandhi, and Du Bois. Um, and so Wolf is kind of set up there in a context of sort of modernist or kind of really critical literary writers who think about also uh, the role of violence and culture. So you'll talk to us about that. And Raj also um, is trained in addition to literature, uh, also has a degree in law, so that may become important. I really feel like there's a wolf moment, but maybe that's just in my own life. So I've been spending the last week reading this short, deceptively short little book, three essays called Three Guineas, 
where Wolf responds to the request to donate money to stop the war. And maybe, Anne, can you start us out by just saying, this is 1938, this is late in Virginia Woolf's life, but this is in the middle of where Europe is hurling into catastrophe. So she's responding to something maybe real, maybe fictitious. And why does she sit down to write this, um, this set of essays? Well, it's a complicated origin story, and it's a complicated book because it looks like a letter, but it's heavily footnoted. It doesn't, it, it seems like it's meant to have the impact of a short pamphlet that's an intervention, like an op-ed, like an urgent thing, but it's 144 pages long, so there's nothing urgent about that. That's a couple afternoons of reading. Um, Wolf was a pacifist. She had lost many friends in World War One, and of course, as you probably know, and as we talked about last time, in Mrs. Dalloway, she tried to write a novel that addressed the damaging effects of war. That was a consistent interest for her whole life. But in the late 30s, after the Spanish Civil War, her nephew Julian Bell had been killed um, as a volunteer ambulance driver in Spain thinking he was going to go off and be a Byronic hero. Wolf really felt very strongly the folly of that and the misfortune of that. And I think she was really inspired to write a counter-narrative to those people who would think that the way to fight for the side of good, to fight for Republicans, to fight against fascism, is to volunteer to uh, take up arms, right? She really hated that idea and really saw how seductive it was, particularly for young men. And so that's one crucial proximate um, inspiration for this book. And then it's also true that her um, ex-lover and friend, Vita Sekpa West's son, Ben Nicholson, had written a letter to her saying, Bloomsbury did nothing to prevent war. You're idle people. All you do is talk about civilization. It's stupid. You don't count. You don't understand what our generation understands. So he was of Julian Bell's generation, and he really was trying to force her to articulate what does it mean to be an advocate against war for on behalf of peace, against violence, against the kind of hierarchies that encourage uh, competitive violence, and that's, I think, a lot of what she's trying to work out in three years. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So she's moved to do this as a generational response. She's writing, who do you think she's writing to? It's not a pamphlet, but it's supposed to be an intervention. Well, it's interesting. I mentioned two young men, yeah. and the articulated yeah. audience is an older man, right. right? She says, when you write a letter, you always picture the recipient. She's writing kind of generically, right? This isn't, there's no real letter that initiates three guineas, but you can imagine it's a response to a type of fundraising letter that Virginia and Leonard Wolf would have received all the time, that we all get all the time, right? Urgent, donate now, you know, support the people of Ukraine, support the people of Syria, help prevent war, you know, your PBS station needs you, whatever it is, right? These, these demands. And she, describes this older man, a kind person, someone who's 
could retire but hasn't yet retired and is still trying to make things work. And she begins on the very first page by expressing her astonishment. This may be the first time any such letter has ever been written. Uh, an established man is asking a woman how to prevent war. Wow. Mm -hmm. And she just keeps coming back to, instead of accepting that as her due, as a famous novelist, as an intellectual, as a prominent feminist, she keeps saying, do you realize how weird that is? No one asks women for advice. And it's only been 20 years since we've had the right to earn a money in our professions. It's only been you know, a few generations that we've been able to go to college. You know, she keeps coming back to what she calls these facts and keeps kind of um, insisting on the strangeness of the request for advice. And there's a not a small amount of anger in her frustration with how seldom women are asked for advice, right? I mean, there's a kind of a... We have received so little from our society. How dire must things be that you're turning to us, the least empowered members of... And is that gesture surprising given what... We have, of course, historical hindsight, but we know this is to actually rally everybody in the fight against fascism. This is very clear. There's a very clearly delineated enemy. She keeps on naming Hitler and Mussolini. She says what's happening in Germany, Italy. So it, when you read it and then you summarize it, you think, whoa, Virginia Woolf backs away from this automatic kind of intuitive, of course I'll donate, of course I'll support this cause, of course I'm on your side. So she takes the step back and says, you are asking me for advice in an effort that in, on, on the surface would be self-evident, I would, I would have thought. You know, when you summarize the book, you think, well, they're trying to get money to fight fascism. Well, wouldn't everybody donate? Right? And she's doing something really subtle. And I think, and I hope Raja and Lily, we can talk about this. Like, is it maybe too subtle by half, right? But she's doing yeah. something quite subtle because she's trying to say... Mm, you know, the things that you see that Hitler is saying about how women belong at home, British people say that too. And the fascism that we are fighting abroad has roots in British society as well. And patriarchy is the problem, not fascism. And all of this talk about how evil the Nazis are, how evil Mussolini's people are for insisting that women stay home and be pregnant. Well, you know, we've only been able to keep our, to earn money in professions for 20 years, right? So we don't have um, the same kind of rights. Mm -hmm. So maybe Raj, come, come in on this initial point here where you would, what Anne is saying is that she's, it's subtle, it's a little bit hard to, it's easy to miss in a way, to say, really, she's going to say fascism, we have fascism at home, or uh, I think it's Anne's fault, it's totally fine, it's a phone, we'll turn it off. And by the way, I'm going to take this moment to also thank PNT Knitwear, which is where we're located in the Lower East Side in Manhattan, a community-based bookstore. I think the spirit of Virginia Woolf is its engagement in the world. We're in a community-based bookstore, and they're allowing us to use this amazing podcasting studio for free, so I wasn't 
I didn't mention that first, but it's a good moment to mention that. Yeah. <laughs> Since we're, this is a place that actually faces the street. It's called Tell Your Story in the Lower East Side. This was in a clothing store that was founded by two businessmen who had survived the Holocaust and started this store here in the 50s. And then their son and descendant has turned it into a community-based bookstore very much in the spirit of what can literature actually do to be part of That's the amazing. world, right? So it's kind of a nice place in there. But maybe Raj, you come in on this kind of who is she addressing and yeah. what motivated her? Yeah, I, I think let, let, let me let me stop with the point I agree, which is that there's something very sort of perplexing about this text, right? And just to set up the problem again, uh, it's written in an epistolary form. There's a lot of exchange of letters uh, and a barrister. She gets a, a, a letter from a barrister uh, representing a peace society uh, who asks her, uh, how, uh, I quote, how in your opinion are we to prevent war, right? And what he's expecting is some support in terms of membership in a peace society. Uh, he's expecting her to sign signatures for a manifesto, make pledges, contribute money. Uh, uh, this is one part. Uh, there's two more. She's also received a letter requesting money to re rebuild a college for women, for women and another letter requesting from a treasury of a, 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 a treasury of a society that helps uh, women in professional development, which and, and requesting for for uh, for for money. So what she does then is sets aside the barrister's letter calling for peace, uh, and this is the late 90s, 1930s. The threat of war is imminent. She sets it aside and first talks about giving money to uh, for professional development for women and women's education institutions, and then starts talking about war and then says, well, let me give you a guinea, but I, it's not really the most important thing. Now, this is really perplexing in the late 1930s. And let me say something about the reviews and receptions at that point, which shows how sort of uh, oblique this is, right? It doesn't directly get at it, and yet it does. Uh, it gets a lot of hostile reviews in the beginning, especially from her own intellectual circles, which is a bunch of intellectual elites, right? Including Rita Sackle West, her husband Leonard West, E.M. Foster, John Maynard Keynes. Uh, they use words like agonizing, uh, tenuous, inadequate, uh, the work, uh, the product of an odd mind. Uh, this is again from Wolf's notes. Maynard Keynes was both angry and contemptuous. It was, he declared, a silly argument, but not very well written. Uh, the, everyone's baffled. Leonard Wolf is, you know, E.M. Foster is, is like, I mean, so, so it basically gets very hostile reviews. And uh, and initially, for, for a moment, you, you, you can see, see why, right? There, there's war is imminent, and the question is, how do you prevent war? And she spends much of the essay talking about women's employment and uh, professional development, right? So I think it's worth just holding on to that sort of perplexing, oblique move that she starts off with, and then sort of unfolding it to see, well, there is some way in which all these three, which at the face of it seem like completely different things, are actually quite intimately connected. Right? Uh, and I, I think another bunch of her readers do get it, right? Uh, uh, it's, a, it's written in epistolary form. She receives a lot of letters from her uh, readers, uh, and a lot of the women uh, do give testimonies of uh, uh, of this sort of dictatorship or fascism in the family or in the workplace, right? And and so there there are these two forms of responses, and this initial perplexity of connecting these three very disparate things is oblique and it's worth like staying with that oddness. So let's stay with this connection for yeah. a moment because it is central, as you said. 
Is it as if she kind of picked out three letters that may not even be real? Say, oh, women's education, women's profession, sort of for women to enter the profession, let's support that, and the war. Yes. And after reading it now for, I don't know, I've read it a few times in the last two weeks, and now it seems self-evident. But she is pretty relentless. And it's not just about the 30s. She goes back far in history. She says we can see evidence of this. But this connection between, they're saying we have to fight fascism. And she said, well, let me tell you what we have to fight, which, and you said, it's the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Can we maybe tease that out a little bit of what is, what is this connection she's making there? And why are these people um, in her circle who are her friends and have known her for decades now are really angry at her, actually, I think, for adding these two other dimensions to this anti-war effort. Sexism is so hard to see, and it's so easy to lose track of it. And she keeps reminding us of the differences between men and women in society as it was then in the 30s, right? And so in the opening pages of Three Guineas, she makes this distinction, this class distinction, by sex. And so she refuses to call herself a member of the upper middle class or a member of the pro professional class or a member of the elite. I'm a daughter of an educated man. And she talks about the fact that she can sit at a dinner table and imagine her at dinner with Keynes and Wolf and Leonard Wolf and her husband and um, Vita Sackville West and um, Nigel Nicholson, who was a diplomat, right? And saying, well, we all use the same forks. We all have the same servants. There's all, we all have the same accents at a time when in British society, accents were very much marking class um, positionality. And yet the men have had a university education and the women have not. And she goes through and looks at Walter Scott's novel Pendennis and talks about Arthur's education fund, which is a kind of trope that runs through Pendennis and talks about memoirs of Victorian women lamenting the stingy family budget for the daughter's education as contrasted with the rich family budget, not just for a son's education, but for a gap year in Europe and then rent and time to, to do the couple years of unpaid labor before you become a barrister, right? So we're not just going to pay for your Oxford degree or your Oxford degree, but we're going to pay for you to be a clerk. We're going to pay for you to follow a judge. You know, we're going to pay for your training. And so finally, when you earn your own money, think how proud you were, but our parents never gave us that. And so by insisting on that difference between men and women, that's the kind of foundation of her attack on the unconscious Hitlerism in everyone's mind, right? That, that, that this is the beginning of a kind of hierarchical thinking. Some of us are naturally better than others. And the first place we see that is in the home where boys are naturally better than girls, sons are naturally more valuable than daughters. And that, the evil of that kind of assumption is the root of what leads to fascism. No, I don't, and I don't know if that's true. I don't know how, I mean, I think. Yeah, yeah. but it is a kind of hierarchy that is naturalized and, and 
the people she cites, she cites people from the church, from the clergy, from government, from business who keep on saying, well, there were attempts made to allow women to enter the profession, to allow women to enter the clergy. And then they find these these arguments for not doing it. And, she, and a lot of it is very historically accurate. I think what's interesting when you said sexism is, is easy to overlook constantly, but she brings a lot of receipts, as we say today, a lot of evidence. There's just endless amounts of evidence and endless, I mean, it's footnoted. There are numbers. There's this letter and that. And then, well, and she was obsessive, right? Because she had these notebooks that she kept while she was writing Three Guineas. So she had kind of scrapbooks um, for several years of newspaper clippings. And they're very d disturbing to look through because sometimes it's just a photograph of people at a banquet. And she had, there's no commentary from her, hmm. so you have to kind of surmise what she's noticing, but what she seems to be noticing is there are no women there, or there's only one woman there. And look at the money that's being spent, not just on the catering and the floral arrangements, but on the white satin sashes and the ribbons and the... Um, jewels and the ro the gold rosettes that mark you as a member of the group, but right, and so it, I find it fascinating to kind of. I mean, I I am not totally confident that I can feel exactly what she was thinking because the scrap. But there's a very powerful emotional freight mm -hmm. behind these very lightly annotated scrapbooks of newspaper clippings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, these are yeah these are scrapbooks that she's keeping since 1931. These are sort of photographs, newspaper clippings that she's collecting. Uh, and, 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 and she's initially she wants to write a sequel to uh, a room of one's own, right? And, and, the, and the sequel is supposed to be the semi-hybrid novel come essay. Uh, and by 1935-36, one becomes a novel, which is the years published in 1937, and the other is Three Guineas, which is a set of essays. But it's again worth thinking about scrapbooks, things from photographs, clippings from newspapers, and a companion, sort of a novel, and uh, a, these set of essays, right? So, so that's that's Wolf writing in the 30s. Uh, but this again to go back to that perplexity, there are two moves that she's making, which which is what is sort of ambivalent. Right? One is uh, when she's talking about dictators and fascism, uh, the first move she makes is makes it about gender. And the second move she makes it is she makes it about not about Britain versus uh, Germany anymore, right? So when uh, when uh, when her nephew, Julian Bell, dies in the war, uh, what she says in Three Guineas is, uh, I mean, her nephew dies in the Spanish Civil War and she votes to take uh, to, to fight English tyranny. That's a really odd move, right? Because the obvious thing you would say is, uh, this is the late 1930s, you have to pick sides, you have to be a committed writer, a committed artist. Uh, you, you, there's, there's two absolute things, there's fascism and there's, there's the rest of the world, there's, there's the liberal democratic order, uh, and uh, her nephew has died. And, and still she says, I vote to fight English tyranny. Now that's, that's a move, I think it's, it's, it's a really profound one. Uh, and there's a way to uh, there's a way to think uh, about this sort of geopolitics as well that I'm happy to talk about in a bit between sort of that it's not a straightforward 
allied versus Axis powers, if you read from the standpoint of, let's say, uh, the Indian National Congress or Gandhi or uh, socialist revolutionaries in, in South Asia, right? Uh, it, it's it's not a straightforward allied versus Axis there. And, and I think here it's still early, it's still 1938-39, but she's, she's mixing those up and that's making readers very uncomfortable. It still does. I spoke about three guineas in Netherlands in 2019 and there was a lot of pushback when, when, when she keeps making these slippages between just very quickly moving between the, the fascist and the father, between Britain and Germany, the dictator at home and the dictator in, in, in the state. So it is controversial. I want to stay with one thing. Sort of, I think there are two things that you both just identified and I can't really make sense of. One is it's hard to follow her emotionally to say my nephew, my beloved nephew just died and I'm going to say let's actually deal with sexism in England. Mm -hmm. That emotionally. So I think, the, and then the other one is the kind of what you said, the political move that sort of is the patriarchy at home, the oppression of women in the home, an equivalent to something else. But those are two slightly different discourses. And I think what makes the book so unsettling is that you feel this incredibly depth of affect and emotion in there. And then sometimes it's very light, a description of some event where someone did some thing in the past and it's a political analysis, it's essayistic, so the tone moves back, not back and forth, but there's several tones at once going on. So I have a lot of thoughts, and let me see if I can kind of unpack a few. So one thing about her grief and her anger about her grief has to do with her sense of the betrayal of the English educational system in indoctrinating young men to think that military valor is the be-all and end-all, right? And so the kind of way that the British educational system and the German educational system at this time, right, saw themselves as inheritors of a Greek tradition, of a Greco-Roman tradition, of an imperial tradition. There's no, I mean, Anglo-Saxon culture is not connected racially, right, to Greco-Roman culture, but the education system keeps insisting, like, we are the inheritors of Homer and Virgil, and you must be uh, soldiers, like Achilles, Aeneas, Hector, you know, imagine yourself as this great hero. And Wolf sees in the death of Byron, in the death, death of Septimus Smith, the fictional character in Mrs. Dalloway, in the death of her nephew who adored Byron, a product of an adulation of in the death of Jacob, Jacob's room, right? novel, yeah. Which can you just give us a one sentence on Jacob's room? Jacob's right. room is a novel that opens with a mother calling Jacob, Jacob to a little boy named Jacob Flanders, and in his surname you hear his fate, right? And so it looks like it's going to be a bildungsroman. It takes a little boy. Uh, from son of a single mother through Cambridge into the professions on a trip to Greece, and then the war breaks out and he's killed. And you never feel like you get to know the character of Jacob. The whole novel, you feel like you're just about to get to know this young man, and the novel ends and he's dead. And you're really meant to feel the grief of the potential of promise of this person, but I think she's also, I mean, it, I don't want to talk too much about Jacob's room, but I think she's embedding in that 
um, some skepticism. I don't think Jacob is all that great. I mean, I think she's made pretty clear that Jacob is a, is a rather ordinary guy, but everyone around him has been trained to see, oh, he's young, he's handsome, he's going to college, he likes Greek literature, he must be amazing. And she's really skeptical about that. And so there's a profound skepticism of how our love of literature is deployed to create a kind of unthinking patriotism that causes people to, who are, you know, I mean, young people, all people like purpose, right? But the one purpose Wolf doesn't want people to choose is a martial purpose, right? A military purpose, a violent purpose. So if you keep saying like, it's great that you're reading the, the Odyssey and the lesson you should take from it is it's great to fight the Trojan War. I mean, I don't think that's the point of Homer, but you know, you can teach it that way and that's really a, deceive people. It's an amazing critique of education. There's a line, something like students are not uh, taught to criticize force, but to use force. So they analyze force and then they end up actually not being good people. Sort of in some ways, and we're all three in education, so we actually believe, and Virginia Woolf also probably, she wasn't in an adult education program much earlier, right? Yes, absolutely. So, and she she <laughs> lectured at colleges yeah. and at girls' schools, but she talks about the way that the alumni of Cambridge overwhelmed the meeting to refuse to grant women the bachelor's degree. And when that vote went down and deferred giving women the BA for a few more years, the men broke out in the streets and vandalized the gates of the women's colleges. You know, and that's a historical fact. And she writes about it in that book and says, you know, talk about, you know, using force. Like, what a disgusting So they're the show. most educated people on the planet at that time, we could imagine. Right, that's and they go and, and be and trash the women's colleges, so their sisters and and they have a you know a meeting of the corporation where normally a hundred people would show up, and they have two thousand people show up, and seventeen hundred vote against granting women the rights to have a BA. So you can say I was a student at Cambridge, but you don't have a degree. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and again, it's worth thinking about photography in the book, right? Because there's there's two discussions of photography. One is uh, photographs from the Spanish Civil War, which are discussed repeatedly, but they're not reproduced in the book. And then there's photographs of uh, the of, of, of these men in full decorous ceremonial attire, wearing all their medals and insignia, and it's ribbons, and it's all like shining and glowing. And those photographs are reproduced in the book. and uh, and and some of, and what some of them these these include sort of massive big civic and public offices right it include it includes judges uh, it includes prime ministers doctors it includes uh, uh, the the former chancellor of Cambridge University so there's an academic as well uh, which she discusses and 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 it's worth thinking about why she thinks those photographs of of the Spanish Civil War which uh, the sense we get reading the book are are very gory very horrific. Uh, and yet she thinks that those photographs, which are sort of raw, and she say, she says these are sort of raw statements of fact. There's just, she says there's no denying that this is a horrendous violence, right? Yet she thinks that these photographs 
uh, can't actually translate into uh, a peace or pacifism or any of that, right? Because because it has something to do again with these men in the full majesty of their sort of royal dignitas occupying this sort of office of pleasure, right? Invested with symbolic rights, a sort of symbolic authority that comes with the degree, especially with these titles. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's sort of, it's these titles, these degrees, uh, it's these positions, this office, which is again inherited. The whole point of the institution is that it doesn't matter who the person is, but it's an office that sort of very magically gives its power to the next and the next, and it's inherited. Uh, there's something very magical to this. There's something again very sort of seductive here. Uh, and, and for some reason, she really thinks, and she doesn't elaborate on this, I'm curious what you all think about it, but why don't the photographs of the Spanish Civil War do the work for her? Why does she set them aside and start focusing on uh, on these photographs of uh, the Chief Justice and the former Prime Minister, Stanley Baldwin, who comes, who, who's in Mrs. Dalloway as well? I mean, she's so far ahead of us, right? And so she's participating in this culture in the 30s of documentary and turning it on its head. And so she's like, okay, in the 30s, people were turning to documentary, right? There's the Mass Observation Project, which is housed at the University of Sussex, or near where the university near where she and Leonard spent their time. Mass Observation Project was a massive social documentary movement in Britain, really revolutionary for its time, going around and just on the West Bank in London on a Saturday night, interviewing people. What are you doing tonight? What are you wearing? Just taking note, right? Ordinary people's lives matter. It counts. So they're going to ask people, what's your favorite song? What do you dance to the song? What do you call that dance? Oh, someone in Lambeth calls that dance a slightly different name, right? So they're just doing really big data sociology. And Wolf knows this movement is going on and knows that she's living in a moment where people are really persuaded by what we call facts. And so she, and she also knows that anyone reading her book will have seen these photographs. So instead of showing, reproducing photographs that are familiar, that will be sensational, that she claims in the book are um, unambiguous, but she knows are completely ambiguous. And that's what Susan Sontag writes about. You know, Sontag really admired the discussion of photography and war in Three Guineas especially, and writes beautifully about it. Because Sontag picks up exactly what Wolf is saying, is that, you know, we know that you take a photograph of a crying child sitting on the street, and you the caption of it totally alters your sense of it. Is this a crying German refugee or is this a crying British refugee? But I want to emphasize one thing you said. She says, oh, these are unambiguous. She said, she doesn't mean that at all. No. It's very easy to misquote her there and say, oh, Virginia Woolf had this simplistic understanding of photography. She actually says, these pictures are easy to understand. Then she doesn't reproduce them. She keeps on describing them in graphic and shocking detail but then makes them do all these other things and says they can be used for this, they can be used for that, they're propaganda, or they're actually moving and the emotions are strong. But it, she, says, she says one sentence about photography, which is kind of a provocation. It has, but she does not believe this at all, right? She absolutely, that's absolutely right. And then the photograph she reproduces, 
I think for me, when I read Three Guineas in graduate school, it was the first time that I'd ever thought to question that genre of photograph. They're very um, direct, straight on photographs of people and of men in ceremonial attire, clergy, judges, academics, and military. Show them here on and they're very odd. They're very odd, <laughs> but they're the kinds of photographs that would be used to seeing in, like, that's Faden Powell. He's the founder of the Boy Scouts. Yeah. And it, it, they're the kind of photograph that we're used to seeing just un, unironically um, shared as like, oh, look, the horse guards, the trumpeters of the horse guards were playing their bugles. Yeah. And she wants you to see, boy, that is a weird outfit. That is very strange. And what you were talking about, Raj, before about the magic. Yeah. Right? She really wants you to say, this magic is created by clothing. Yeah. And let me tell you something, women know about clothing, and this is silly. Yeah, but it's silly. It's, it's also hard-hitting. And I, you can almost sense people reading this who are getting more and more upset because they see themselves actually in those pictures more than anything else. Because all the men reading it participate in this kind of dressing yeah. for your profession and all that. And I can, you can almost feel... The recipient thinking, this is no longer funny. This is no longer just, oh, come on, you're overdressing and you're overdoing it a bit with, you know, the the uh, the ribbons and all this. It's not. It's not. There's nothing nice about it. Mm-hmm. Nothing at all. Because this is actually a very, very dangerous, seductive, and terrifying ritual. Yeah. But but, but it, it, I I mean the two things I uh, just quickly uh, about the uh, about the photographs I think she's being very ironical when she says this is not this is fact yeah but I also think she wants to retain some notion of sort of witnessing there right I think she wants she doesn't give she doesn't say this is all in context this is all interpretation I think she wants to yeah. hold on to it. Uh, but also say, well, it's about how the photograph is there. I think she wants to have, be sincere as well as ironical with those things. I think she feels like she can be a better witness yeah. by not representing the photograph in some ways. Right? Yeah. So I think witness is the right word. That's good. Yeah. She so, is actually an active observer. She's yeah. not the passive recipient of being hit over the head. Oh, this is what it means. She actually becomes a witness by yeah. telling us what this photographs contain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a uh, you know, we won't, I won't get into this, but John Berger has a really good essay on what happens when, you, when we see war, what, war photographs and, you know, the, the direction the argument goes in is, you know, we make it all about ourselves and my responsibility, what do I do about it, and end with just, like, donating some money and nothing, you know, so depoliticizes the situation. So that's the war photographs. With these photographs, right, these sort of office photographs, photographs of, like, symbolic investiture, there's also an ambivalence there. She she knows that there's some connection between, you know, the chief justice and the professor and the doctor and the lawyer with war, right? Sovereignty, that which decides on war and offices, these offices of political authority, and there's some kind of, and civic authority, lawyers, doctors as well. There's some connection between sovereignty and these civic offices. That's an open, let's think, you know, one, that's a question to think about. And there is a seduction uh, but now with the suffrage, she might be very soon given an opportunity to take part in it, right? So, so this, you know, this is a, not going to quote the whole thing, but she's she's standing, she's she's in her private in, in the house, and she's watching the, these sort of men wearing in, in in their wearing their wigs and their gowns and then ribbons, they're trapezing. There's a, so there's a parade, and she says, 
think one of these days you may wear a judge's wig on your head and ermine cape on your shoulders, sit under the lion and a unicorn, draw a salary of 5,000 a year and a pension of there's a There's a little bit of a seduction. There's like, there is a chance and she doesn't want to give it up because this is the question. You need to be part of, you need to earn money, you need to be participate, you need to be part of the economy as well. And only if you participate can you have a say in how to prevent war, right? So the, the dilemma here is how do you participate without being included? Right? Uh, how? Because the problem with sovereignty, that which decides on war, is that there's this mysterious or magical way in which it seems to sort of seep into these offices of power. Right? Uh, so, and with sort of suffrage and with political participation, you're sort of drawn into it. But that's the risk of complicity. How do you sort of participate, earn, have your room, uh, uh, have the room of one's own, earn the sort of uh, uh, salary that you need to survive? and yet not get caught and complicit in the sort of disbursement of the sovereignty. So that's how she gets this idea, this kind of paradoxical idea of the outsider society, right? So what would it mean to have a group of outsiders, right? To have an outsider society. But what really was striking me this time is in the very first chapter where she talks about burn down, I'm going to give you your guinea for the college, burn it down, let's start a completely new college, with a completely new curriculum um, that is modern, that's responsive to student needs, that's interdisciplinary, that rejects tradition. I mean, some of what she's describing, I think, we have done in universities now. I mean, I think the kind of stepwise, um, chronological, rigid notion of what a major is, is no longer part of most university curriculums in the United States in 2022. You don't take English 1 and then English 2 and then when you're a senior you finally get to the 20th century, right? That's not how people study literature, just to take one discipline. But she's going on this fantasy that really feels very fresh and then she stops herself and says, but you remind me you have to make a living. You have to earn money. No one's going to listen to you if you don't have a BA. We need to do the bureaucracy to get the BA. So every she keeps talking herself, and that's part of the power of the book is this iterative, you know, in each chapter she talks herself into this peroration of enthusiasm for something really revolutionary, and then she imagines her interlocutor's objection and says that we can't do it. Is, is the question she's working out there, what you just said, or both of you said, can you change a system that produces war and trains all these young men to be enthusiastic about it and trains all the women to be ready to mourn and bandage and become nurses and all that and donate money? Can you work within the system to change it or do you have to step out of it? So the example is burn down the college or this idea of the society of outsiders, which is this kind of unincorporated, non-hierarchical thing, what, and I don't really know what it is, you have to tell me what it is, but is this a way to think about her book as having opened a question of what you said, and she actually works it out sometimes over pages. She says, this would be, this is amazing, and yet, who can live like this because you need to live in society? And you said, you, it, you said you, you're not just, you know, need money, but you also there's other things, there's vanity and there's recognition and you want to be with other people and you're social and all these other things which she doesn't dismiss ever as minor or secondary. But is this a way to think about the text as she's working out? Could there be a separatist 
politics. Well, and, and Raj mentioned earlier the letters that readers wrote to her that were appreciative, and some of them said, I'm going to join the Outsider Society. Like, I feel so connected yeah. to this idea. Um, can I send you some money to join the club? And of course, that's not the point at all. It's all a thought experiment, which is partly part of the frustration of the book. But yeah. uh, and uh, there's something again specific about the late thirties here, right? The, the the imminence of the war that is to come is that it's a total war, right? And the point about total war is all differences between the combatant and the civilian uh, are blurry. Right. So there's no way of being outside of war, and if, if, if you know, war total. The total. The point about total war is it's anthropophagic. It eats you up, right? It eats up everything. In fact, in fact, I, you know, I don't have it here, but there's there's a way I've written quote about how, how you know, it's, it's a moment where any everybody is suddenly drawn into the center of the problem, right? And there's a there's a little bit of that style in Trigonis as well. The style of the work is. Everything repeats in threes, right? Uh, there, there, there's three guineas. There's uh, uh, that violence repeats itself. Uh, that the story of Antigone and Creon repeats itself. Uh, everything is happening again and again. It's you know it's like waves of violence that keep sort of washing. And uh, there's a sort of circularity to the way the, the 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 text is written as well, and everything sort of comes and goes. So there's really a problem of. Uh, violence as a vicious circle, violence as pattern, you get sort of engulfed in it, and how do you think or start imagining an exit from it, right? And I, I think there, there, there's a couple of ways in which she sort of thinks about how to think about contracting out or autonomy here. Um, there, there's, you know, there's one ex society of outsiders is one. Uh, there's another uh, uh, example where, because the point about society of outsiders is that it's still a society, Right, it's still a cooperative sort of group apparatus, uh, and I don't know. If, and, and there's a way in which she's thinking about society or, or autonomy as uh, uh, all you know examples of let's say publishing and modernism as well. Right, there's a way in which you you can actually get together and then create these sort of circles of exit. Uh, it's all very sort of. You know, it's, it's she's just trying to think, and she's not fully worked out. But uh, but do you think this step outside, which she sometimes says, "Burn the college down"? Mm -hmm. No, I'm not gonna give money. Not gonna give money. Is this? I mean, I'm gonna push the text a little bit. Is it politically viable, or is it a useful goal? And I think sort of. I mean, and you probably taught this text, and you know, it's in 2022, right. and we are constantly actually pulled into either what Raj said. We're all in this. We all have to mobilize. We're constantly, you're already part of the effort. You have no position, neutrality, it's an illusion. That's actually very seductive, so I'm engaged and all that. But it's also very dangerous because that means you have now been subsumed under the logic of we're all fighting in this. Or is she saying you've fallen prey to this logic, which means that everybody is in a war in certain you, you know what I mean? Like, can she pull, is this outsider position, maybe it's not realizable, but is it something useful? I think what's most useful for me is when she talks about the four great teachers of the daughters of educated men. Yeah. And so she says, you know, those of us who grew up proximate to privilege, but had our fathers and our mothers deny it to us because we were girls learned a lot. We learned four things, and she calls them poverty, chastity, derision, and freedom from unreal loyalties. So by poverty, she doesn't mean 
actual poverty. She means the poverty of a family that budgets for a university for a son and not for a daughter. So that's a very specific kind of poverty that I know that I'm not valued and I have to make do with an unfair portion of the family pot. By chastity, she means she's very, very uh, furious at the argument that some men make about the value, women's value is their persuasion, right? And she says that's prostitution. And we're taught to be chaste, and I'm not gonna just be chaste sexually, I'm gonna be chaste intellectually. Like, I'm not gonna spend my time wheedling and needling and trying to figure out a clever or cute way to get you to prevent war. I'm not doing that anymore, I'm not prostituting my intellect. My intellect is mine and I'm gonna use it with tremendous integrity, right? And then derision is um, just the mockery of brothers and fathers and people who don't think that, you, that your interest in entomology or medicine or literature is silly, right? The freedom from unreal loyalties is really, really powerful. And that's one I think that is persists today in lots of spaces. So I was just looking before I got on the subway to see you, I was on Twitter and the sociologist, Tressie McMillan Cottom, who's a sociologist of higher education, among other things, black sociologist. Um, one of her most common sayings is the institution cannot love you. Well, that's freedom from unreal loyalties, right? I mean, what Wolf says is as daughters of educated men, we understand that the love we bear for England, England doesn't bear for us. The love we bear for Oxford, Oxford doesn't bear for us. The love that you have for your Tesla is not returned by the Tesla Corporation, right? And so whatever it might be, whether you, you know, it's a brand that you're loyal to or whatever it is, they're not, they don't love you back. And women get this because we've never received the dividends of being loyal. So she says, you know, men who've been soldiers come back and they get these ribbons, right? And then they get to go to the banquet and sit at the fancy table. And the more ribbons you have, the better seat you have at the banquet. So it feels like it's a, there's a prize. No prizes for the women. So the women are like, oh yeah, that, that so-called prize is a grain ribbon that you get to wear once a year at a party. That's silly. <laughs> Unreal loyalty, so you think that's a kind of um, liberating oneself from the delusions that the patriarchy keeps on presenting right. to people. Right, and so when you think about our own complicity in these systems as citizens, as faculty members and students at universities, as um, human beings, remembering that idea of freedom from unreal loyalties and kind of keeping relationships on a human level and not being seduced by the fiction that the that my party, my political party, is going to save me. Mm -hmm. Well, that actually is an anti-fascist intervention, isn't it? Mm. If you can see when you go to vote that... Candidate A is marginally better for you than candidate B. Not candidate A is the savior, candidate A is my sovereign, candidate A is my God, right? But just candidate A has policies that are more in line with my values, right? Just just like a little detachment. I think it's mm -hmm. a super powerful political idea. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It, 
and and the, and the phrase uh, unreal loyalties. I just want to quote from the work. Uh, you want to know which are the unreal loyalties which we must despise, which are the real loyalties which we must honor. Consider Antigone's distinctions between the laws and the law. Right. So consider Antigone's distinction between the laws and, and the law with a capital. With a capital. Yeah. So the law is the absolute law. It's a moral law that she thinks is higher than all the laws of the country, of the nation, of the courts. They're not courts, but the kind of customs. Yeah. And, and what's the distinction she makes there? So, well, I, I think she wants to distinguish between uh, Creon, who's the tyrant, uh, and uh, loyalties that are, you know, it's she's she's not she's not. This is not the religious reading of the, this is not the religious antigna that she has in mind, right? This is, uh, I think, loyalties that one uh, uh, that are more authentic that mm -hmm. sort of come from you. In, in some sense, she's she's a radical sort of individualist. There's a strong, you know, there's a lot of discussion in the book about wanting things, desiring things. Uh, you want to learn. Somewhere she talks about how women uh, uh, women have a love for wisdom. Right? I mean, around the same time, uh, Ambedkar, who's a constitutional philosopher in, in India, writes about how Brahmins, the upper caste, and he, he's from the untouchable caste, have a rootless have a rootless search for knowledge, but don't have love for knowledge, love for wisdom. There's a very similar quote here where you know Wolf is saying women have a love for love for wisdom. So I think it would, there's a distinction between the law of Creon and there's a sort of at, at least in my reading, a sort of radical individualist position of, of autonomous choice, of action, of thought, right? And so when she says, as a woman, I have no country, which there's a very similar quote in Ambedkar as well, where he says, as a Dalit, I have, she says, as a woman, I have no country. The other side is Creon, who says, uh, our country is our life, right? Uh, and so uh, I, I think there is that distinction between, you know, what, what are, so you need to have then, the tradition you would then put her in is Sophocles' Antigone, uh, is Socrates from uh, from Crito, uh, is of course uh, Thuro Gandhi, especially this towards the end of Three Guineas. Is you know that would be a sort of genealogical intellectual history you would place her in. And how I'm making sense of what you're both saying, it's not a um, kind of sort of soft, nice position. And it's kind of important what you said at the beginning. She is really vilified by her friends. She This is not a nice text. So she doesn't say, oh, you know, make yourself free from these kind of loyalties and therefore find genuine connection to other people. That is not Virginia Woolf. She says it is uncompromising and it doesn't mean you're just going to get along with people you love things. So it's not a kind of simplistic appeal to a more humane way of being, right? And she's an incredibly social person, and this was personally deeply painful for her, the rejection of the Bloomsbury group. She did not enter into this lightly. I mean, she, I think it took her by surprise, the reaction of her husband and her friends. It was deeply painful to her, and she thought about how the pain of thinking against the current, as she called it. Yeah. And she wrote about, you know, in the early 40s, she wrote about how thinking was her fighting. And so the way that she was going to fight fascism was by continuing to puzzle out how you fight fascism with integrity according to the values that she held, yeah. right? And so if I was a pacifist during World War I, 
why am I no longer a pacifist during World War II? Hmm. Well, the arguments that are being presented to me is that fascists demand that women stay home and bear babies and are loyal to the fatherland. I've heard that in England too. I'm not persuaded, right? I mean, I mean, she knew Hitler and Mussolini were significantly more evil than, you know, the, the prime minister of England. But she also saw something that was very uncomfortable to admit yeah. in the late 30s. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's kind of devastating in a way that um, she has to take this step. Uh, devastating and also kind of awe-inspiring that she took it because no one forced her to keep these scrapbooks, scrapbooks and write this and it would have been the easier option maybe to just join in the war efforts. Absolutely, right? I mean, and, and I think it's important, you know, the, 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 the political activities that she describes the barrister as acting, asking her to participate in are political activities that she participated in her whole life signing letters. I mean, during the general strike in 1926, she bicycled around London and sought the signatures of famous writers in support of the striking miners. She attended mm -hmm. political meetings. She supported her husband when he ran for parliament. She wrote um, occasional pieces on behalf of working women and the Working Women's Cooperative Guild. I mean, she was a novelist primarily. But she was a politically active novelist when she says, you know, you're going to ask me to give money, go to a meeting, and sign a petition. Those are things she did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anything you want to add? Um, I'm just thinking. I know, I know we're yeah. going to come to an end, but this is a lot. And actually, in some ways, that you said she's... If I get you right, Anne, she's, she's taking this risk... And there's something in it. She can't help herself. She has to write this, right? So she doesn't actually uh, compromise herself and say, I, I'm going to protect my own relationships. That's what I wanted to get at maybe when you said, you know, you devote yourself to your real relationships. And she's actually in a kind of Carol Gilligan where she's risking her relationships because she's true to what she believes and to her friends. And one interesting thing that I'm thinking about that I don't have the answer to is that it was common among Auden and his friends to say, I knew right away that Hitler was bad because I had gone to a British public school and those teachers are fascists, they're Nazis, you know, and it's a really facile um, equation, right? I mean, it's kind of dumb, baby political theory. I, had, I was bullied in public school. I understand Hitler's a bully. I think he's terrible. That was common. I mean... Auden says it, Isherwood says it, Spender says it. Those young men were praised for their perspicacity when they said those things. Wolf says it with receipts, as you said, and talks about it in terms of gender, and she is rejected. Yeah, yeah and, and I think towards the, uh, towards the end of the book, there's also... Uh, I mean, this this entire idea of re rejecting all badges, orders, degrees, honors, she says, don't find, and she uses this language of beauty, which, you know, initially when I came to work, I, I didn't expect to see so much of that word thrown around, right? It's just not what I, but, but towards the end, it's full of your duty to do this, your duty to do that. 
it's just not what I expect from you know modernists of the early twentieth. No, it seems super old-fashioned Victorian, yeah. like duty, like yeah. Kipling. I see this in Gandhi a lot, right? But he's a very nineteenth. Right. And, and and you as you have a duty to not bind yourself to oaths and ceremonies. You have a duty to refuse uh, to make ammunitions or nurse the wounded. And then she says. But uh, but you must maintain an attitude of complete indifference. Right? Indifference also becomes a, a, a keyword that comes up a few times, where, where she says it's about uh, uh, it's also about in some ways, uh, in some sense, ref refusing to take sides. Uh, again, it, it, you know, we, we might evaluate it in whatever way we we think it should be, but. There is a certain aesthetics of suddenly a sense of flatness, of neutrality, of rejecting this sort of ornamental, uh, uh, ornamental sort of uh, honor that comes with mm -hmm. with with recognition, and instead uh, there's a sort of minimal flatness to it, uh, and which also I see as a kind of move towards sort of thought and thinking, which is really you know in 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 Hannah Arendt's hindsight what was lacking in the sort of crowd and mob and thinking is what, what was lost this evaluation judgment and thought and Wolf is really sort of call, calling for that and, and you know I, I have a really nice Roland Park quote here on this sort of neutrality and he says I propose that the desire for the neutral is a desire for first suspension of orders laws summons arrogances terrorisms puttings on notice the will to possess then by way of deepening refusal of pure discourse of opposition suspension of narcissism no longer be afraid of images to dissolve oneself in one's own image. But there is a sudden sort of minimalism and, and, and a certain kind of introspection, a certain thinking about thought, and uh, which, you know, it's, it, it, I think it's open to how we sort of judge that move, but that move is there in a certain way towards the end. And, you know. <clears throat> to me, this is, I think, why the book is so powerful. It opens up a space yeah. that what Anne said, the boys all got praised for it, and she opens it up, and people basically want to shut her down. Yes. And it's nearly 100 years later, and we're still in an age of wars and um, ideological uh, disputes and sexism and the patriarchy. And in some ways, she opens up that space to keep on thinking those two things together. Yes. So when we started this conversation and when you and I talked about having this conversation, you know, we joked about how, well, she's wrong, right? I mean, the urgent need is to fight Hitler and Mussolini. So I'm curious now, after we've kind of talked through this, how do you feel about her stance in this? I feel um, that what she allows you to do is to be more reflective and not just think, I'm going to join in this side now because we know the other side is wrong. I think you can maintain both positions. You can say, Putin is absolutely wrong. It's a war of aggression. This does not necessarily explain all the moves being made in response to that are the correct moves, and I have to be enlisted and participate in all of them. I think there's also she wouldn't use this word, but a lot of hypocrisy. People are supposed to act in this particular way while other things are happening um, that are not being done. So people are supposed to sacrifice certain things while other people are not sacrificing. And she opens up that space that we know today, maybe more because we live in a media-saturated age, we hear a lot less about what's happening in Tehran and Iran today than we hear about Kiev. I think there are many reasons for that. I think it's worth pausing to understand some of the reasons. I'm not saying I know the reasons. I'm not saying I get it, but I think Virginia Woolf would say, 
be very careful not to be dragged into a moral position and stay there. Even take the position, give the guinea, but keep on thinking about what are you participating in now. I does, love that. Does that make sense? That makes absolutely But I think it's sense. so important because you also there's a kind of a little bit of the smug satisfaction, like, oh, I gave the guinea, I'm on the right side of history. As we know, you want to be on the right side of history, but she would say, but keep on careful. You're being enlisted in some other project as well. For example, that by rallying against this force, we're just going to neglect all the other battles for the moment. That's a re- and that's a really common thing that people say, right? I mean, I was just teaching uh, Yusuf Komenyaka earlier today, the um, black poet who was is a Vietnam vet. He's an NYU professor. He's a wonderful poet. And we were talking about the effectiveness of Vietnamese propaganda on black soldiers, saying, you know, what for what purpose are you fighting for the American army that assassinated your leader and Martin Luther King? Well, that is a great question to ask an Alabamian black soldier in 1969, just a year after King's assassination, right? What is your loyalty to an American army that's asked you to travel halfway around the world to fight a proxy war in the Cold War? It's very complicated, right? And sort of thinking through, I mean, part of the... the amazingness of Komunyaka's Vietnam poems is that he helps you think through the complexity of these divided loyalties, right? right? And that, I think, is, uh, that's an incredibly powerful thing that we have to do. And to keep that space open, I think that's, I think why she seems important to me is because she kept that space open and as Raj had at deep personal risk or loss. She was really hurt by the response. And I think that's important to remember. It's not she said, let's keep the space open because I'm a fancy privileged novelist and I can talk about these things. She said, I'm taking a real risk. And most people wouldn't take that risk, actually, and say, I'm going to just put myself out there and if and effectively actually, you know, change my reputation, my social life, my friends, my personal relationship, all of that. Even how she's considered an English writer or not. I mean, she's essentially, to a lot of people, not really English at this moment. So I think that's actually important to retain that she takes a risk on our behalf. Yes. So I, um, I'm going to bring this to a close. And I think I wonder if I could invite you again to talk about A Room of One's oh, Own, <laughs> since we've referred to that text. So I want to thank my guests again. So Anne Fernald, as I said, is professor at Fordham University, uh, the editor of two editions of Mrs. Dalloway, a book on Virginia Woolf, Feminism and the Reader. And Raj Saikumar is a PhD candidate in the English department at New York University. We are at PNT Knitwear. It is a store and podcasting studio on the Lower East Side in Manhattan in New York City in November 2022. Natasha Roy is here with us, who is an undergraduate at NYU, with whom I've had many conversations about Virginia Woolf, who's actually helping with this project and uh, I hope you liked this podcast conversation. And as I said, we I hope to bring Anne and Raj back for a conversation about a boom of one sound. So thank you for coming. Anytime. Thank, thank you. So much, you. Yeah. This was thank really you. fun. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs>